This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师,你好,我是华人的牛报记者。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 19th. Today, what lockdown looks like in Jordan a controversial approach in Sweden, and the new guidelines causing drama in Canada. Every day at 7 p.m., we hear the sound of the sirens. This is the same alarm that would be used in case of uh, war. And it lasts for about five minutes. My name is Samir Samur. I work in the IT sector. My name is Marwa Banat, and I am a civil engineer in Amman, Jordan. So almost every night at 7 p.m., these sirens just go off across the entire country of Jordan, announcing the beginning of the curfew. I'm Lina Mohammed, and I'm a producer for Post Reports. After the sirens, we hear the sound of a man telling us that we can't go out anymore because the lockdown has begun. The situation is not fun, it's not to be taken lightly. And whoever uh, thinks about bypassing the law will definitely face the law. There will be consequences. So ever since the beginning of this pandemic, I kept a close eye on Jordan just because I have a lot of family who still live there. And I noticed that it was not what I was experiencing here in the U.S. It, it wasn't like, you know, maybe social distance, maybe don't, maybe put on a mask, maybe don't. Don't go out in public unless it's absolutely necessary. Meanwhile, in Jordan, they enacted an emergency law that restricted citizens' rights and deployed the army to enforce it. So it was clear, you are going to stay in your home, and if you leave, we're going to arrest you. And I think that's a thing that a lot of Americans don't realize. I mean, all of us are like, we're ready to be off lockdown and, and feeling like we're being caged in. But compared with a lot of countries in the rest of the world, like what America is doing, it's pretty like quarantine light. And there are a lot of places like Jordan that have these really strict measures in place where it's literally like you cannot step foot outside of your door for most of the hours of the day. Yeah, it's always sobering to call up my friends or family back home. It really puts things into perspective. I mean, obviously, we're experiencing similar feelings and similar situations, but measures taken here are just not as restrictive. The quote-unquote lockdowns that U.S. governors put into place are much more lax than what we're seeing in other parts of the world. So how restrictive are these measures? 
Jordan had one of the most serious lockdowns in the world in place, and it still does to some extent. So in the beginning, they had a total incomplete curfew. You could not step foot outside your house. Um, very quickly, the government realized that that was um, too much of an ask uh, from its citizens. So it eased those restrictions a bit. Then they had a partial curfew where you could walk to places or you could... Um, go to your local supermarkets, get your essentials, but you still still couldn't drive. And then when they finally allowed driving, it was based on your license plate number, actually. So if your license plate number was an even number, you could only drive it on even number days of the month. And if your license plate number was an odd number, then you could only drive it on the odd days of the month. Except for Fridays, those days have a complete curfew. So you cannot leave your house at all. And then there were other provinces. So, for example, one of Jordan's hotspots was actually the province of Erbet. What the government did there was they completely locked off that province and imposed a total and a very strict curfew on that entire province. And to what extent are these really restrictive measures in Jordan actually working? Like, what are the numbers on the number of COVID infections there and the number of people who've died? Yeah. So if we're looking at the numbers, it actually appears to be working. I mean, this is a country roughly the size of Indiana with a population of, of just over 10 million. And so far, they have a little over 600 confirmed cases and only nine deaths. So just for reference, here in the U.S., the death rate from COVID-19 is 27.37 per 100,000. In Jordan, it is 0.09 per 100,000. And so the the people that you talked to, did they draw a direct connection between, look, the government took it really seriously, they made us take it really seriously, and that's why our infection rate is a lot lower than other places that are comparable to Jordan? Yeah, I spoke to Dr. Najwa Khouri-Boulos. She's a consultant at the National Center for Security and Crisis Management. That is the government body that is sort of heading the response to the coronavirus. And she attributed Jordan's relative success to its strict lockdown, along with other things, like getting on it early enough, the widespread testing that they have available, as well as the contact tracing teams that they have just out in the country randomly testing groups of people. I told the prime minister, this organism does not give you distinct clinical anything. I consider myself a very smart doctor. I will not know who is the patient who has COVID without the test. You have to get us the test. And that was the first thing that we said, and he made sure we have it. And His Majesty made sure we brought the testing in very large amounts to Jordan. The communication, especially by the minister, who really has to be given credit. The minister that she's talking about is the Jordanian health minister, Dr. Saad Jabir. Dr. Saad is basically the Jordanian answer to Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Saad, even though he is charismatic and he is very effective, he did also make sure that they knew he has the backing of also the medical community in the form of the of this committee. This makes a great difference to the country because this way you bring the implementers with the, quote, advisors. And that has been a great help in Jordan. 
What Dr. Saad did well is that he was able to bridge this gap between politicians and scientists. And so early on, he brought scientists to the table to be able to make decisions alongside the politicians in regards to what to do. The other thing that Dr. Saad did well is he was a good communicator. And he had it hands on. And so when people listen and know what's happening, it has helped a great deal for the public to accept. And that's really the major thing that Jordan succeeded in. He was, as Dr. Najwa described him, he was a great leader. And the the public just loved that about him. So much so that his nightly briefings became a must-watch in Jordan. He laid it all out, he explained everything, and there was a clear path ahead. He said, hey, this is going to be hard, but the only way out of this is for everyone to work together. Was there any pushback about the fact that they were putting in like sweeping rules that could restrict people's movement in the name of this public health crisis? You know, there actually wasn't. It's interesting. I spoke to a political activist there. His name is Mohammed Zawahre. And Mohammed actually thinks that what the government is doing is great. And I asked him, do you know that they're giving you like the right numbers? And he told me, he said, I'm usually very skeptical of the government and, you know, of, of things that the government tells us. But for the first time in my life, like, I believe our government. For me to hear that from you know, someone who's typically considered the opposition in Jordan, I mean, that was very telling. So after talking to these different people and officials about what's happening in Jordan, what do you think are your big takeaways of why Jordanians have been pretty okay about this? I think ultimately it comes down to freedom and liberty and how each person defines that. When you're pitting individual liberty against public health, when you're pitting individual good versus communal good. In a country like Jordan, it appears to be that the communal good was winning out. And so the question is, how much are we as a country, as a community, willing to sacrifice our liberties to suppress this outbreak? And in Jordan, that answer seems to be very different from the answer here in the U.S. Alina Mohammed is a producer for Post Reports. Well, Sweden, among the democracies in the West, uh, and certainly among European countries, has stood apart from what we've seen take place elsewhere. My name is Ishan Tharoor. I'm a columnist on The Post's foreign desk where I write the daily column Today's Worldview on International Affairs. Sweden, among the West's democracies, has taken a conspicuously different approach. It hasn't pursued the same kind of mandatory lockdowns and quarantines that other countries in Europe certainly have. 
it hasn't shut down schools, uh, at least for kids under the age of 16, in the same way that we've seen in the United States. And it's, it's maintained a semblance of normality, more so than in other countries. People are going out and about. People are still convening in restaurants. Gatherings of under 50 people are still allowed to take place. But this is all happening in a context where every suite has been given guidelines about social distancing, and many are actually following them. Paradoxically, given how Sweden is a, essentially a social democratic state, U.S. conservatives love what they're doing. Sweden was once praised by the left for its lavish welfare state, but the times, well, they're changing. Tonight, to assess what we're now told should be our model, Sweden. They see it as this wonderful alternative where schools are open, businesses are open. The mortality per capita in Sweden is actually less than France, less than Italy, less than Spain, less than Belgium, less than the Netherlands. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul brought it up in a hearing uh, with Anthony Fauci. But basically, I don't think there's anybody arguing that what happened in Sweden is an unacceptable result. I think people are intrigued by it, and we should be. The Swedes have not impose the same kind of quarantines and lockdowns on their society that their neighbors have and that other European countries have had. Uh, they haven't closed down businesses. They haven't necessarily enforced social distancing in the way that every other country around it has. And so it's more measured and relaxed approach has appealed greatly to conservatives and others elsewhere who are skeptical of these lockdowns in the first place. And I would point out that that's kind of ironic because I feel like it's pretty rare to see conservatives like holding up Scandinavia as a model for what we should be doing in the U.S. But but it really does seem like people are tapping into this idea that Sweden is doing it right and that everyone else is going too crazy and being excessive and Sweden's more moderate approach is what we should be adopting everywhere. Yes, I mean, it also helps that there's been a flurry of media coverage and TV stations going there and taking video of these sunny streets in Stockholm full of people attending bars and sitting out in parks. Are you worried to get out, to go in bar, restaurants, etc. with the coronavirus? Uh, no, not particularly, no. I think it's okay. Hey, my name is Isaac, I'm 22 years old, and I'm enjoying a beer in the sun with my friends here in Stockholm. Cheers. But of course, the reality is a bit different. First of all, Sweden doesn't necessarily see itself having arrived upon some kind of solution yet to the coronavirus. Uh, Swedish officials, including their top public health experts, believe that the experiment that they've embarked upon uh, is suitable for Sweden, Swedish society in general, but it's not necessarily a template that can be transplanted elsewhere. What they've anchored their strategy in is trust in the fact that ordinary Swedes are going to follow the government's uh, social distancing recommendations. That is, there's a kind of voluntary buy-in into social distancing that's taking place that doesn't need to be enforced with harsh punishments, fines, policing, and so on. This long-term thing on the, on the low scale that we do in Sweden is much more sustainable Anders Tegnell, the Sweden state epidemiologist, has essentially become the face of the government's response to the crisis. But here we have a, a lot of trust between the poli politics and, and the agency levels, and, and we keep on having a constant dialogue on what's best to do in the situation we have in Sweden with the, with the possibilities we have here to diminish the impact on public health in this pandemic we're living with. 
The other really important thing about what's happening in Sweden is that it's not about saving the Swedish economy. A lot of the ways in which uh, the outside world, and especially people in the United States, have viewed Sweden's strategy is as an economic one. Like, look, they're not doing the same lockdowns as us. It must be better for their businesses. That is, it's hard to tell if that's the case. Sweden's tourism and hospitality sectors are in free fall. Uh, the country is forecasting the same uh, scale of GDP losses that Germany and the United States are. And no Swedish official who talks to you about the strategy that they have pursued frames it in economic terms. And then I think it's also important to look at how many infections and deaths there have been in Sweden. How do their numbers compare to other countries and specifically other countries in Europe? Not well. Obviously, Sweden has not seen the same scale of of crisis as countries in Southern Europe like Italy or Spain, but it is the worst performer in Scandinavia and among the Nordic countries. What they do say, what public health officials in Sweden do say, is that this is a long uh, struggle against the virus. And the strategy that they have embarked upon, one of its side effects is that they believe that they're going to build herd immunity in the Swedish population faster than we may see it in other countries that have enacted stricter lockdowns. They believe that perhaps a third of the population of the Swedish capital, Stockholm, obviously the biggest uh, population center in the country, may already have contracted the virus and are producing antibodies for the virus. Now, of course, this is a, a rather complicated and controversial debate taking place among scientists who are weighing the, the effectiveness and the uh, the costs of a herd immunity strategy. Swedish officials also say that their goal was not herd immunity, but that this may be a consequence of the more relaxed approach that they have taken. So, so you talked to Karin Olofstadter, who's a Swedish ambassador to the U.S. What did she have to say about whether or not what is happening in Sweden right now should be held up as some kind of success story? She was pretty adamant that this is not some sort of perfect solution that they have arrived upon, that this is not a template that can be imposed elsewhere. Our strategy is based both on recommendation, voluntary measures, and legally binding measures that we can live with for a long, long mm -hmm. time. It's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Her view, and presumably that of the Swedish government that she represents, is that this is a strategy they're taking now. Uh, that works for the systems and societal structures that they have in place, but that they may review if things get really bad. What they have in place right now in Sweden, as Olaf Sutter told me, is not some kind of normal status quo. They're not partying and celebrating. Most people are embracing social distancing. Most people are avoiding public spaces. And they've seen big setbacks to their economy. But this, the advantage Sweden has compared to other places uh, is that there's a pretty strong social safety net there. Basically, everyone in Sweden works. There are no stay-at-home parents. So if we would have closed down um, daycare and, uh, and the school for the younger kids, we have, would probably have lost 20 to 30 percent of the healthcare workers. And of course, uh, the Swedish ambassador recognized as well that there have been failures in that strategy and in particular... They failed in their country's nursing homes where the virus uh, really took a pretty deadly toll. The vast majority of deaths in Sweden are of people over the age of 70. I think everyone and everyone admits to that, that this is something you know, where, where we have failed. 
So the efforts they're taking right now are, are focused on testing frontline medical workers as well as shoring up and supporting their nursing homes that have already seen a huge uh, hit. I think it's clear that what's happening in Sweden is not like an open and shut success story, and they're saying that themselves. But to the extent to which people are thinking that what is happening there is something that should be applied in other countries or particularly in the U.S., I mean, there's just so many things that are different about Sweden than here. The fact that they can just recommend to people that they stay home and people will generally listen, which is not, I think, the case here or in a lot of parts of the U.S., um, but also when it comes to healthcare and the fact that Swedes are on average healthier than Americans, have fewer of the comorbidities that Americans have that affect whether or not you can survive getting coronavirus and have better access to healthcare. That's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the Swedes themselves uh, are pretty insistent that what they're doing isn't necessarily applicable to the United States. You don't see in Sweden, at the same time, the kind of vociferous partisan debate that you're seeing here in the United States over lockdowns, over the handling of the crisis. In Sweden, actually, um, even though the ruling government is a minority center-left coalition, they've taken essentially a backseat to this. And the country's independent public agencies are leading the line and passing down the instructions to the Swedish public. So it's it's a huge difference in terms of the kind of civic consensus and buy-in that you have in Sweden compared to, say, a place as polarized as the United States. And then on top of that, absolutely, you have a healthier society as it is and a society where they've fast-tracked sick pay and strengthened unemployment insurance in ways that have guaranteed that people who are potentially sick but feel like they have to work will not have to work and put others at risk. And there is also, as you said, a level of discipline and societal buy-in that just simply does not exist in the United States right now. Ishan Theroux covers foreign affairs for The Post. He's the author of the Today's Worldview newsletter and column. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. And now, one more thing from reporter Amanda Coletta in Canada. New Brunswick and Newfoundland and Labrador are two provinces in eastern Canada that have made strides in flattening the curve. And last month, officials in both of those provinces decided that as parts of their society begin to reopen uh, very tepidly in both cases, that they would allow residents from one household to form a two-household bubble or a double bubble, as they call it in Newfoundland and Labrador, with residents of another household. 
this policy has created a surprising amount of drama. My name is Karen Centiford. I'm 42 years old and I live in Sackville, New Brunswick, which is in Atlantic Canada. I immediately went back to junior high school thinking about how you ask somebody to be on your team or that kind of like waiting to be chosen to be on someone's team or going to an event and now I'm already going with someone else. So I was thinking about about that and a friend's uh, son described it well and said, there's a lot of friendships that are going to be lost over this. So each household can only pair up with one other household. Both of the households have to agree to be in a mutually exclusive relationship and the choice is final. So if you hang out with the members of the other household for a few days and you find that you're actually regretting your choice, it's too late. There's nothing you could do about it. Um, it's not like The Bachelor where if you pick your final choice and you decide that actually you prefer the runner-up, um, you can get the producers to go and find her and, and bring her back for you. Sometimes there's tension created with the, uh, you know, families, especially with children or both partners have extended family that, you know, they could go visit. I'm sure that uh, longstanding family grudges have been started over much less in some cases. I have friends who have not bubbled with anybody else because they they don't want to offend family members. So they find it easier to just not be with anyone um, rather than create that kind of uh, family tension. And I think even sometimes with friends, the same thing has happened. They haven't kind of paired up with someone for fear that they might offend somebody else. I also want to be clear that it's not necessarily a Canadian innovation. New Zealand has also been talking about household bubbles and expanding your household bubbles as it goes through the various stages of its reopening plan. The English Channel Island of Guernsey also implemented the two-household bubble and various parts of the world are talking about creating bubbles or groups of, of friends that will be small and exclusive as they look to reopen the economy and their societies. Amanda Coletta covers Canada for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today, we want to shout out listener Beth VA, who left a five-star review of Post Reports on Apple Podcasts. She said that ever since she started working from home in mid-March, Post Reports has been her morning go-to. Thanks, Beth. If you're a listener who wants to help more people find our show, leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind, or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.